Today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. Turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 9. While you're getting there, let me just bring a few stats to mind. As of the last census in Etowah County, there's about 102,000 people that live in this area, about 102,000 people in the county. Uh, I want you to know that of all those who declare religious affiliations, those who do not constitute about 20% of the population. That's around 20,000 people. So you may think there's not a whole lot of people that I know that aren't Christian, but in all actuality, those who declare they are not Christian directly, they say they are a part of no religious affiliation at all, are about 20,000 people. That means about two out of the 10 people you come in contact with every day, unless you're working on a church staff, hopefully, right, (laughs) or some other Christian organization, about two out of those 10 are going to be saying that they are definitely not Christians. Now, if you know anything about how things work, you know that a lot of people call themselves Christians. Uh, In fact, uh, Barna says that of all the people that call themselves Christians, uh, there's about 60% of those that don't go to church. So they call themselves Christians. They don't think it's important to be a part of a faith family. They don't have a regular community of faith that they're a part of, and that's a pretty big number. In fact, a lot of people say that they're believers. We know the scriptures say that many think that they will be believers or a part of the family of God, but in the end, they will end up not being that. That's what he talks about, one of the scariest passages he talks about in the scriptures that talk about that, where Jesus says, uh, many will come to me on the last day and say, did not prophesy your name, did not do all these things in your name, cast out demons in your name. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. They call him Lord, Lord, right? I mean, there's many people who think that they're believers who are not. One of the toughest jobs, I think, in the South especially, is you have to oftentimes in conversation get to the point where if you recognize from what you can understand, the way the Holy Spirit might lead you to understand, that you see somebody you're talking to who thinks they're a believer who is really not a believer, and then you have to take them through the process of helping them to see if they are a believer and lead them down that road so that then you can help them to become a believer by giving them Jesus, right? That's one of the hardest things we do. But what I'm going to tell you about today, what the scriptures are going to talk to us about today is that that is exactly, hear me right, that is exactly this outreach idea, this making disciples idea is exactly what we're to be about. In fact, you can think of it in this way. Just think of the cross, right? Jesus came here to accomplish two purposes ultimately, to make much of his father and then to seek and save the lost. And we're thankful for that, amen? Because without that, there's no reason to be here today. Without that, there's no reason for us to even call ourselves Christians. It doesn't do us any good at all. And so you can think of it for ourselves that our purposes are not unlike his because we're being shaped into his image as we become more and more like Christ. We will therefore do one of two things continually. We will make much of God and we will make disciples of Jesus. In fact, that's the last words he says to his own disciples He tells them to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded, right? And we know it wasn't just for him because right before he went to the cross in John 17, he prayed for those who would come to faith and be disciples by those who were making disciples, his own disciples. He prayed for us as the future generations of disciple makers. So we know that is our same mission as well. Now we know this and we've heard this. But I want to take us through a passage that's going to challenge us today about how we do this and maybe some thinking in our minds that needs to change, definitely some things in our heart we need to ponder and think if we need to change, and I will guarantee there's some things in our actions that need to change. So if you would, look with me in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 9 and we're going to go through verse 13. Now notice real quick, 
this series, this two-week series called Welcome Home. Now, this is because we are going to create a place, an environment, when we gather together that needs to feel like home to those who don't have a home right now in the family of God. If we're really going to do what God has called us to do and has made us to do and has created us originally to do and has now recreated us by giving us Christ and turning us alive from death, then we have to do this, welcome home those who are not yet in the faith family. And so this isn't just about a place, but we are going to create that environment here in our homes and our lives, and we're going to help them understand forgiveness for the past and hope for the future in Jesus. So let's look at the passage, let's read the text together, and then we're going to pray and then walk back through and break this down. You ready? I'll wait for a minute. You ready? Okay, good. Here we go. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, or in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he learned it, he said, though, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we are unable in our own ability to fully understand everything that you might want to say to us from this passage. So we ask for the assistance of the one that you have sent to live within us if we have been born again. That you've given us your Holy Spirit who can enlighten our minds, illumine our understanding, and help us to understand what you want from us and who can empower us to live that life out for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the souls of those who do not yet know you. Help us, Lord, to understand what you want us to hear today and that you would press that upon us in a way that is not shakable, that it cannot be shaken from us, and that we would respond in obedience and for and in our joy we would live it out for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's break that text down again. Begin back in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Luke refers to him as Levi before he gets the name Matthew. He's sitting at the tax booth. So Matthew's a tax collector. Some of you have been in church for a while. You've heard these things. If you haven't, let me enlighten us. Uh, it's not unlike what many people feel about the IRS today in some ways, right? They're not the most favorite people of everybody. Now, I'm appreciative of those who work in the IRS and for the IRS because if we didn't have that, we might have people like Matthew who actually went house to house with some bodyguards probably and collected and collected a little extra off the top instead of doing it by rules and regulations that were governed by a democracy, right, by a democratic republic. Instead, they had guys, they would go and they'd take a little off the top and they would live on the luxury of the people that were paying taxes that he would then turn around and pay off to the next guy up and the next guy up the next guy up. So everybody took a little extra off the top. And Matthew was one of those guys. He was actually one of the Jewish folks. So he was a traitor because of the occupying army he was collecting taxes for. So he was a traitor. He was seen in that light as well. He would not be allowed to come and participate in the worship experiences that they would have as the Jewish nation. He would be ostracized, not allowed in that. He'd probably sat down by the Sea of Galilee, kind of close to the shore, watch the ships come in. He would take the money off the top as people were selling fish and doing their thing. 
And as Jesus walks by, he probably knew all about Jesus already. And Jesus looks over to him. He says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose up and followed him. Now, we can't imagine what was going on in Matthew's mind for sure, but we can be pretty aware that he's probably shocked that a guy who has a huge following of people, and he turns and looks at him and says, follow me. He's like, me? Really? I got me. Of all these people, you want me to come with you. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, that word sinner is used in a couple different ways uh, back in this context. One, that would have been anybody, anybody at all would have said yes, that they are sinners. They know that they transgress the law of God. They have to have a sacrifice to cover that because they should be condemned for transgressing the holy personal law of God. They understand that. The Pharisees would understand that. In a minute, they're going to use that word sinners. I don't think they mean it in that way. There's another level to that word sinners that you've heard before, right? Where they're called sinners because they're like the worst of the worst. They're the ones who even the the regular kind of righteous sinners who go to church and do their church thing would never hang out with because they'd be declared dirty or defiled to hang out with them, to eat with them. And that's what we're talking about here. Matthew's referring, I mean, to here, the type of people that would be seen as the ostracized, those who are put out, those who are not welcome, those who would not be hanging out with those who are really living out their faith. In fact, these would be the people who didn't really live out their faith very well. They might do some of the religious stuff, but not all of it. They wouldn't be seen as those who were true believers, right? But these are the people that were seen as what, quote, sinners, kind of the worst of the worst. Notice, though, that Jesus reclined at table with them at over dinner, One of the most intimate things you can do in that culture is have dinner with somebody. And they're hanging out together. Jesus hanging out with those that nobody else would hang out with if they're serious about their faith or their religion. And behold, not just Matthew, but many tax collectors and sinners came. We can assume that would include prostitutes, other publicans or tax collectors like Matthew has stated here. Anybody else would be seen as kind of the low of the low. And they were all reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, things get interesting, right? And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, it's kind of weird. How would they see that? Well, because when Jesus walks through town and got this huge crowd following, people would follow. And when you're having dinner, it's this weird thing. We, we build up fences around our houses. Used to, you hung out on the front porch, now you hang out on the back porch, right? But they would have doors open. People would crowd around and watch and listen and try to listen in at the windows, the doors, and come in and stand around in the background and kind of be a part of things. So the Pharisees are hanging out there. Why are they there, right? Except to find dirt on Jesus, we know. And he says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus is going to respond. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So the implication here is that the Pharisees think they have no need for a physician, that they're the well people, but these sinners are the ones who need to be healed. Just in case we're clear on that, we're not clear, let me clear it up for you. Verse 13, he then says the only commanding verb in the passage, which should give you note, when he tells you a command, when the command is used in Scripture, that's generally going to be the most important part of the text in a set of verses together, okay? He says here, go and learn what this means. The word go is not that, it's the word learn. Go and learn what this He said, you need to learn this. You need to learn this, Pharisees. You need to learn this, religious leaders. You need to learn this, super uber religious. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
In fact, the Hebrew translation of that word for mercy in the Septuagint is the word hesed, which means steadfast love in Hosea. Okay? It was translated when it was translated over, and the, what people knew it would have been used the word mercy. But the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now make sure we're clear. What he's saying to them is what was going on with Hosea. God's staying to the people in the time of Hosea through him. He's saying it right now. Jesus is saying it to these Pharisees. He's like, I'm not saying don't do your religious duty and the sacrifices and all the religious stuff I've told you to do. But over and above that, if you just do that stuff by kind of rote memory or by doing the stuff you should do to kind of check off the boxes, that's not what this is about. Over and above those sacrifices, when your heart's not in it and when you're not really worshiping me, I don't care about that then. I care about you exhibiting mercy. I desire mercy for you to live out a reflection of my glory. See, all the rules in the Old Testament, all the law in the Old Testament is actually a reflection of the character of God. It's not there just to say what you can and can't do. It's there to say, I created you to reflect my glory. I created you in my image. And so if you want to live out your life in the utmost joy, in the utmost fulfillment, you'll live out how I created you to be. We could imagine that a hammer would not be happy being an ax, right? We can imagine that any other tool you have is meant to be used a certain way. Anything you create or make is meant to be in a certain way. You might repurpose things as needed, but that wasn't the original purpose. And for its utmost use, you use it the way it's created to be. And we're created to reflect the glory of God. So he gives us these rules and regs and says, do this stuff because that's how I am, right? I'm steadfast in my love for you, even though you sin against me regularly. You need to be that way towards others. So put all that in context. Let's read it again. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying everybody's a sinner. Everybody's sick. Sin is a disease you can't overcome. It leads to your death, physically, spiritually, forever. Okay, you cannot get over it yourself. He's saying, you are this. Recognize it. That's what he's saying, right? Now, how does that apply to us? Where are we going? Okay, I'm going I'm to take us through this path again, and this time I'm going to unpack it for where the, what this means for us. If you're going to take notes, let me give you the overarching point I want us as the church to understand. Now, if you're a guest with us, you're maybe thinking, why am I here today? We're going to get back to you in a second, okay? Right now, let me talk to this faith family. You listen in. This is really important. You listen in and check it out. Here it is. It's our responsibility to reach the people no one else is reaching. It is our responsibility to reach the people no one else is reaching. It's not anybody else's responsibility. It's collectively the church's responsibility to reach the people no one else is reaching. It's not just your pastor. It's not just your youth leader. It's not just your Sunday school teacher. It's our, collectively. Everybody that's been saved has been saved for a purpose, to be, to be imaging Jesus, ultimately imaging God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And we're to image them, and they have set forth that, that, that they would save, seek out and save the lost. 
It's our responsibility. And there's at least 20,000 people that declare that they do not love Jesus in this area. Two out of 10 people, one in five that you walk by. It is our responsibility to reach them. No one else's. It's ours. And we have to own this responsibility. Let me walk through this and see what we see. Look back in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Number one for this, to, to do this, in order for us to reach the people nobody else is reaching, we have to take responsibility to do this first step. Number one, we have to start noticing the people that others tend to overlook. Okay, we have to start noticing the people that others tend to overlook. Now, we live in a rich, luxurious society compared to most of the world. Agreed? You may not think you're rich, but we live in a place where you can get whatever you want, anytime you want, and you can get it really fast. Did you know now that you can sign up for something for about $10 a month, they will deliver your groceries to your house from, from like two or three different grocery stores, and you make a list, they just show up at your house for $10, $10 a month. As many times as you want, as long as you live within a certain mile range for, in Etowah County, you can get that. Do you know that? Who knew that? We know that because we're using the fire out of that. You know how much easier that is than going to the grocery store with five kids? It's crazy, right? But how many times do you not pay attention to the people that are serving you? We have servants. They're paid servants. They're people that are in what they would call the old times indentured servants. They, they put themselves out to serve you, and they get paid, and they make a living doing it. You might be in that job. You might be serving people. How many times do you not even pay attention to the people that are serving you? How many times do you not pay attention to the person that's bringing your food to the table? How many times do you not pay attention to the one who's showing you to your seat somewhere, the one who's signing you up when you're at the doctor's office, and you're just thinking about you and thinking about what you can get through because you got this big thing in your mind. And that's okay. We're all busy. We're crazy busy. I know it. We're too busy. But how many of us are not paying attention to those that everybody else is also overlooking? Take it back to middle school, the worst time for most people's lives, middle school. And remember what it was like to either be or see the kids that nobody would sit with. You turn your eyes away from them so they don't look at you. Or unless you were part of the group that was making fun of that group, right? It's one of those things we overlook people all the time. It's our responsibility. Like Jesus looked at the guy that nobody else wanted to look at. One, he might ask you for money. Two, he's got bouncers to get the money, right? Three, he's a traitor, He's the worst of the sinners, not even welcome in the temple. He looked at the guy, of all the people around him, he looked at the guy who was the most non-looked at guy and said, hey, you, come with me. We've got to start paying attention to the people and noticing the people that others tend to overlook. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Listen, I'm going to give you a story real quick. We're going to jump over to this. Luke 10, flip over there real fast. Keep your finger here, flip to Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. Luke 10, if we can get on the screen, let's do that too. Luke 10, 25 through 37. You'll know this, okay? I'm not going to stay here long. I could. I could preach a whole other sermon, but I, I will stop myself. You're welcome. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? The guy's right. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But this guy, smart guy he was, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? Right? Who's my neighbor? And here's a famous story. Don't get caught up in the part that you already know. Just listen with new ears. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He must have been thinking like, oh, there's another one of those stories I've got to interpret, right? That a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now notice real quick, the priest would be the guy who is supposed to intercede on behalf of the people. He's the one who's supposed to take care of people. He's the one who's supposed to intercede on behalf of God for the people. And on behalf of the people, he's the one who's supposed to, to bring God to people, bring healing, bring restoration, reconciliation. That's his job, right? So notice what happens. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In fact, the Greek word uses a word that's a conjunction that says anti that side. Like he went on the other side on purpose kind of idea. That's what he's kind of trying to demonstrate. He went over there. Kind of like what we would do if we walked by somebody downtown in the gutter, we might walk by the other side, right? Okay. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, and that's the best of the best, right? The Levites. These are the best of the best servants, chosen people of God, chosen of the chosen. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. It's again saying the same wording, anti that side. But a Samaritan, this is important to note, you may not know this, the Samaritans were seen as dogs by the Israelites. They were half-breeds. The Israelites at this point in time, at least, were very racist towards those who were half-breeds and outsiders. And so this guy, in the story, when as soon as Jesus says a Samaritan, people would have been like, ugh. So whoever makes you think like that, I'll put it a different way. Hang on. Whenever you're talking to somebody and you're going to talk about a particular people group and you whisper it, that's the people we're talking about right now. Right? You know what I'm talking about. This is how they would have viewed them. Right? The worst of the worst. I can't touch them. I can't eat with them. They would walk out of their way extra mileage to not go close to the town where these people live. Okay? That's how much they didn't want to do it. It's like when you leave here and you want to go to the falls and you go down 411 instead of cutting over through South 11th Street. You understand what I'm saying? That's what we're talking about. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on his own, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages. So if you make 100 bucks a day, that'd be $200, right? If you make 50 bucks a day, that's $100. It takes two days' wages, gives them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now he looks back at the guy and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Right? You go and do likewise. Now, look back at Matthew chapter 9. We know he said it's our mercy, not sacrifice, right? And we have a guy who's overlooked, who's not getting mercy from anybody, who doesn't give mercy either. And Jesus finds that guy that's the unnoticed guy, and he reaches out to him. He reaches out and says, you follow me. And then he goes to the guy's house, and he hangs out and has dinner with the guy. And we know he becomes one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the inner guys of Jesus, one of the guys who begins to turn the world upside down after Jesus goes on to be with the Father. He picks that guy 
And it's, so because Jesus demonstrates that and Jesus had a reputation for doing that, it's our responsibility also to reach the people nobody else is reaching by noticing those who are often overlooked and reaching out to them. First, you've got to notice them. Start looking around. God, open my eyes to the people that are going unnoticed and help me to see them with the eyes that you see them with. That's a great prayer for us to pray. Secondly, if you want to do this right, you notice them, but then you've got to go and spend time with people who are outside the church. You want to do it outside the church and with people who are, quote, outside the church, outsiders, folks that are not members of the church, not regular attenders. That means you've got to make room to do that. That means you've got to make time to do that. You may think, I don't have time. I'm so busy. I don't have time in my life right now to do that. If I might be so bold, Jesus arguably could say he's the most busy man in the world, right? The busiest guy ever. I mean, in him and through him and by him were all things created and being held into being, right? He's sustaining the universe. Every little thing, every atom in your body, the reason it doesn't come apart ultimately is because he makes the rules and he holds the rules in place for physics. You understand? Like, he's the guy doing all those things at once, fully God, fully man. Here he is. And here's what is going on. He stops, and he goes to have dinner with a bunch of the unwanted, unnoticed people. Right? Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And Jesus, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Man, you know what would happen? If it got to be known around town that I was hanging out with a bunch of the worst people at their homes while they were partying, it might not be too good for me at first, right? I might be called a drunkard or a glutton because I'm hanging out with sinners. So was Jesus. And he wasn't. It's not okay. It doesn't mean you can't be a drunkard or glutton. But we're supposed to hang out with the people that are unnoticed and overlooked, the people that nobody else is reaching. There's at least two out of ten, probably more like four to five or six out of ten that you walk by every day that don't know Jesus really. And we've got to create time to get involved in, in areas of the world around us to make relationships with those people. It can start as easy as just talking to the people that you're around when you go to the store, talking to the people you're around when you go to the same restaurant. Make it a habit to go to the same places to eat and ask for the same people and try to build relationships with them. Make it a habit to start to say, hey, how can I pray for you? Do you go to church around here anywhere? Hey, I'm not judging. I'm just curious. Do you go anywhere? I go to this church. Where do you go? Do you go to church? And then get into the information. Everybody, most everybody says, yeah, they go to church. And then you say, hey, what church is it? And then you'll know, right? Because that's when they'll say things like, well, you know, it's the one over there on Rainbow Drive, you know? Hey, who's the pastor of that church? Uh, you, know? <laughs> it's, you don't want to put them on the spot. I'm just saying you want to find out, are they really involved or not? And if they are, here's what I'm telling you. They can become a new friend, but just move on to somebody else that's not. Make time. Most people can only maintain, maintain about eight close relationships statistically. And if all of yours are covered up with people that already know Jesus, you need to respectfully bow out of one of those a little bit in order to build a relationship with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. You mean, that's a lot, man. I don't want to leave that. I can't do that. Jesus did exactly that. Stepped out of eternity forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son stepped out to become one of us, to live among us with those who are rebels so that he could come and be with us and love us and save us and draw us into his family. 
And we're to be like him. We're to be like him. Listen, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, Paul has just got through talking about, and is talking about this, this, this people are living in ultimate sin, the, the church gone wild, that's, that's Corinth, right? He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, and you're like, well, yeah, I can't do that then. No, but listen, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So you're talking about somebody that's unrepentant, somebody who doesn't care, they're living in utmost upright sin, who's just saying that I am a sinner and I don't care, and they're living it out and they're a part of the church and people are like, yeah, look how accepting we are. He's like, no. Show them how serious it is. Love them by putting them out and say, you can't come here and do this and lead people astray if you're going to live like that. Now, if you repent, you're welcome. We love you. We want you. We hope you repent. That's after you've worked through all these processes with them already. But he's saying for those that are outside of here that are drunkards or swindlers or that, that are tax collectors or that are sexually immoral or whatever, like I'm not telling you to not hang out with those people because who are you going to hang out with? I came to save sinners, not the righteous, right? We are saved by God to be a part of the rescue mission, not to ride the bench. And I'm not here to put heavy on you guys or my own right. I'm like, C.T. Studd, you ever heard of that guy? That's just an awesome name, by the way. C.T. Studd. He's a missionary. He's got some awesome quotes out there. Let me give you one. He said, some want to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Right? Maybe, maybe, hear me right, this is dangerous. Maybe you might be spending too much time up here and you don't have any time to spend any time out there, which is where the people are that need you most. We have to find ways to clear some schedule to do that. It's our responsibility to reach the unreached people. No one else is reaching. Let me go on. Here's another way to say it real quick. Give you two more to kind of put it out there. Love people where they are, but love them too much to leave them there. That's what Jesus did. He loved them too much to leave them where they were. He brought them on. Follow me. Love people right where they are, but love them too much to leave them there. I'll put it a different way. Invite people to come home with you. Hey, come to my house. Let's do dinner hey, come to my large gathering of, of believers, of our faith family, and let's gather together. Bring them home. Bring them home. You, you, you've been running around all this stuff. And I've been talking to you for weeks. Let me bring you to a place where you'll be loved just because you walked in the door, because Jesus has loved us like that. Invite them to come home. It's our responsibility to reach the people no one else is reaching. And here's how we're going to do that. Let me, this, is where it, this is toast up in time. We're going to run over just a couple minutes. Here we go. We need to do this. We got the, last, the last thing you got to know to do this, we have to create a welcoming environment so that the only obstacle is the gospel of Jesus. You understand? We got to make sure that what we do, how we speak, how we live, how we act, that the only thing that's offensive in what we do, the only thing that is, that is offensive and, and that gets people mad is the good news about Jesus, the fact that they need him. We've got to create that. And you guys have done a great job. I've heard it over and over again. People feel welcomed. That my kids feel welcomed. You know, everybody's feeling like they're brought in and assimilated in very well to the community groups. But I want to throw out a few things real quick to give this some idea. And the great American poet named O'Shea Jackson, we better check yourself before you wreck yourself. 
because we have a lot of room where we could do better, okay? We have a lot of room where we could do better. Let me give you some examples. We might be like the Pharisees who are blind to their spiritual sickness, right? Look what Jesus says to them, verses 12 and 13. He says, but when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. They were blind. They're missing the whole point. If they were living out the mercy, they'd be hanging out there eating dinner too, right? Not judging Jesus for doing the thing that everybody, I, he took a people, Abraham, and he said, I will bless you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, they will be blessed. And that's what we're all meant to be, the blessing in that way. Is it possible that you're blind to your own spiritual sickness? You might be willing to say, everybody in this room would say, yeah, I'm a sinner. But what if we change the word? Would you say, hey, I'm a criminal? Would you tell people that? Would you go outside here and say, hey, I'm a criminal? Nice to meet you. Because that's what we are. We transgress the law of God. We're criminals. We're rebellious to the point of death because we have gone against the king. We've rebelled against the king. We have risen up daily and said, not you. I'm king. I'm queen. Right? We're criminals. We need to understand the severity of our sickness. And there's nothing we can do to overcome that. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Let me point it to you like this, right? If people come here and you see them and your first inclination is to say something to them and you're not checking what you're about to say, let me put it like this. If you can't say anything nice, let me give you some examples. Been a long time since I've seen you walk through here. That is not very welcoming. Hey, that's my seat. Sorry. That's not welcoming. Somebody comes in your home, you let them have whatever seat, right? Unless they really get to know you, then you can tell them it's your seat. (laughs) If you can't say anything nice, listen, Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Making people feel guilty because they haven't been here is not the way to get them to come back. You understand? We get that, right? So glad to see you. Man, I've missed you. So good to see you. Come sit with me. Let's go do lunch. And how can I serve you? Can I help you with your kids? That's a question you can ask my wife or me anytime. Can I help you get to the children's department? Can I help you get to the car? Can I help you do anything? Can I carry that for you? Whatever it is. Listen, notice the people that are going unnoticed. It's our responsibility to constantly have our head on a swivel to understand who is new and who is not. And if you don't know if they're new, but you don't know them, go introduce yourself and say, hi, my name is whatever, and I'm so glad that you're here. Have you been here before? I don't think I know you. And you may find out that they've been here for forever. That's great. That's, oh, that's good, man. I'm so glad. Man, what Sunday school class are you part of? What small group do you go to? What are some other obstacles that might keep people from coming back or from making this place home? Let me ask a few questions. What if they don't even know we exist because you've never told them about the faith family you're a part of? What if, what if it's because they feel like they don't have the right clothes to wear? Now, let me say something. Let me get real serious. Okay, you ready? Most of y'all dress real nice real nice. And I'm not telling you not to dress nice. I'm just saying like, you know, every once in a while, if you feel like wearing jeans, just wear jeans. It's okay. If you feel like wearing, you know, a polo shirt instead of a button-up shirt, it's okay. Do it. Come with how you like to be. 
The whole like do, putting your best on Sunday for God, that's, that's a bad mis- idea, bad idea. Because you're supposed to be the best for God all the time. And so if you don't cut your yard in the best clothes you got, then you can't use that phrase. You know what I'm saying? But if you like to come in a tie, that's okay. Come in a tie. But if you want to come in jeans, come in jeans. Did you realize that most people have on average eight pairs of jeans? Who needs eight pairs of jeans in the United States of America? Our clothes, you might be surprised. Ask people why they don't go to church if they don't go to church. What happened? Something happened to you? Because most people have been in church. You ask them why, it's because they've been run off because of the way people talk to them or because of how they were treated or because they walked in one day and weren't accepted. I think I might have already said this just, to, just because it hits the point. Let me say this. I had a college student, right, that I was bringing. I told you this before, I think. I'll say it again. I had a college student that I was working with that was unchurched. And she had been coming. She became a believer. And uh, she, she brought her little five-year-old nephew with her. And that morning, he'd never been in a church his whole five years of life. And that morning, he walked in. They, when they were getting ready, he wanted to put his hair in a faux hawk, you know, and so she made it up in a little faux hawk and sprayed it up for him. It looked really cute. And uh, when they came in the door, I never found out who it was. I, I really tried hard. One of the deacons at the door caught them and said, hey, don't ever bring him back looking like that again. Right? Our misperceptions, our misconceptions about what it takes to be a part of a faith family, you may never do something that crazy. Right? But maybe you're doing something that you need to change. And maybe part of what you can do is help other people feel comfortable by what you do, right? I've had several people say to me, I can't go to that church because I don't have good enough clothes to go there, right? I'm talking about this place even. And I, you come whenever you got on. I don't care. Come in your slippers. We don't care. But the truth of the matter is they came in their, like, not best clothing. They might feel out of place sometimes. You know what I mean? So what are we going to do to make it a welcoming environment? How are we going to do that? Let's just think through it and pray through it. Signage, our music. Hey, you want to know why we're changing the music, if this is kind of new to you, why we're doing something a little different early service, some little different late service? Because we have the opportunity with two services to reach two different segments of the population, and we want to do something nobody else is doing by having awesome, great modern music in the early and very, like, just, man, these great old hymns just like the way we've done them for most of our lives growing up in the, in the second service. We want to do that because we want to reach people nobody else is reaching. When you pair those, both of those things with hopefully what we consider to be strong, exegetical, expositional preaching, we'll have something nobody else in this area does. And we want to offer an opportunity to reach people nobody else is reaching. To do that, you've got to do something nobody else is doing. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to work hard to do that. So you ask me, why are we doing this? Probably the answer is going to be because we're trying to reach people nobody else is reaching. Listen, we need to do everything we do in order to reach those people. We have to adopt the missionary mindset. And let me tell you this last bit. Our purpose sets the pace. What we are doing and why we are doing it sets the pace. You are going to go at a pace when you realize that there are people around you in this town that are dying every day who don't know Jesus. And if you really believe that the hell is real, if you really believe that it's hot and it lasts forever and that it's painful, and that it's a horrible place to go, and the people will be there forever, and it'll be the worst thing they could ever experience. If you really believe that, then you will do something different, and it will change how you live and how you act. If you really believe that's the case, you will live differently. You just will. Our urgency is urgency because people are dying and going to hell. That's what has to happen. So I hope, I encourage you to look back on this text one more time with me. 
Look back. Look at this. I'm going to show you how all the points. You may say, I failed this all the time. It's okay. Jesus already did it right, and we're going to be done. Look at this. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He said to, he noticed the guy nobody else was noticing. He noticed you. He noticed me when nobody else noticed our depravity and our need for a Savior. And he brought it to you through the Holy Spirit to hear the gospel that you would know him and could be his. He brought it to you. He noticed you. It's our turn to notice others for him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Listen, we got to spend time with people outside the church because he came to spend time with us. And now he's spending time with us continually through the Holy Spirit living within you. He came out of eternity to become a part of what we are. And loving people where they are but not loving them, loving them so much more to take them where they need to go, that's what he did for us. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't just like save you and throw you to the side. He loves you and he's shaping and changing you and it's our part to be back in the mix with him. It's our part. It's our turn to invite people to come home with us. Bring them to our home because he's waiting for the moment when the Father says, go get them. Go get him, and he's taking us home to be with him forever. And we get to be with him with all forever, with no sin, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, just the joy of the presence of the Lord. And man, what a party that's going to be at the banquet supper of the Lamb, right? At the wedding supper of the Lamb. 